Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. The show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desks. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at aspirus.co, A-S-P-I-R-U-S dot C-O, and linkshus.com, where you can sell your products everywhere. Hi, Sandy. Hi, how are you? Well, I'm well, and you are about 16 hours back in time from me. <laughs> yes, it's still Friday here, and you have seen glimpses of Saturday already. Yes, and you're in, based in San Francisco, and I'm talking... Uh, Yes, I'm actually, I'm over in Oakland. Oh, yes, correct. I'm, my apologies. I'm talking to Sandy McPherson, founder of Quip. Uh, why? Because I have been using the platform and it helps some audience of mine from the US to actually check out what is on Analyze Asia. And I thought it's a very interesting platform. So I decided to talk to Sandy here because there's some interesting stories about Asia users with the platform too. But before that, I want to get to know her better. How did you get started in science and technology? Yeah, so I was always interested in science from the time when I was really young. So I always took science classes if I had an option. I would always sort of ask for like science kits and little chemistry kits when I was a kid. And so it was something that I always really enjoyed. I was in math club when I was in elementary school. So I was always a little bit of a, uh, of a nerd. And then in university, I studied geochemistry. More specifically, I worked on my honors project was around how do you use plants to extract heavy metals from contaminated soils. So I was really interested in science throughout my my schooling. And it was something that was always sort of part of what I was interested in. The tech stuff came a little bit later. I worked in science for a while and then that led to a, to a shift to tech. You have a very interesting background. You have worked in the area of environmental science to clean tech. I mean, you work in Environment Canada. You went to work for Social Venture Partners Toronto. What I want to ask is what are the interesting lessons in your career that you have learned working in these areas? And I know it's a very, very difficult area, sure. particularly in the area of clean tech. Yeah, so I think, so previously, if you had asked me this question a couple of years ago, I probably would have said nothing. Like working, working for the government was not not good and it was a waste of time and I didn't learn anything. But I think I've come to realize that one of the skills that I picked up there that was really important and continues to be really important in the work that I do now as a founder is I was working on basically creating policy. And when you make policy, it's really difficult because you have all of these people who are sort of shouting at you about what they want and how they want it their way and why they want it. And it's often really difficult to understand, okay, well, what is the like root cause and what is the reason that those people actually want that? And that was sort of my first exposure to people not quite understanding their own needs and not quite understanding how to verbalize what it is that they want and self-reporting bias. And then also trying to manage large groups of stakeholders to come up with something at the end that's actually useful and interesting for a broader audience than each of the individuals that are that are involved. But otherwise I also learned that yeah working working for the government was not was not for me. And then you go into the private sector then. Yes, yeah, yeah. So then after I worked for some nonprofits and the government, I ended up going back to school and so I went to Schulich, which is a school associated with a university in Toronto for my MBA. And it was while I was studying for my MBA that I started taking a bunch of classes on entrepreneurship, tech entrepreneurship, tech strategy, design thinking, things like that. And that's what sort of 
led to me making this this shift after my MBA to focus more on tech and startups. How did you end up moving to Silicon Valley and now based in Oakland? Yeah, so it was, for me, I was in Toronto and the Toronto startup scene is doing really well. There's a lot of great companies starting and growing there. At the time, so this was just over four years ago, it was still pretty nascent. Like all new tech ecosystems, there were some problems in terms of getting started and starting a company. And for me, I recognized that, okay, if I'm going to make this shift to work in tech, to work in this field that I know nothing about, that's pretty risky. And so what are the risks associated with that and which ones can I mitigate against? And so one of the ones that I thought stood out fairly strongly was location. And that was something that also was slightly easier to mitigate against because it's something that you can just change. You can just change your location. It's not, there's like some legal stuff involved, but it's not super, super difficult compared to some of the other risks that you encounter as you start a career change. And so for me, it was identifying, well, being in Toronto probably isn't the best place. And I recognized that the best place, again, four years ago, was to be in the Valley. And I was like, okay, if I really want to do this and I want to give it the best shot that I can and increase my chances of success, I should go there. And so that caused me to, to move down to Palo Alto. And then over time, I've, I've moved a little bit around in the Bay Area. It's been interesting as I've been here for four years, I would say that four years ago, Palo Alto and the Valley itself was, was still pretty much like the center of all things tech and startups. But it's been interesting to watch that sort of shift to San Francisco. So now most of the companies and most of the people, almost all of my meetings now, are in San Francisco, and I, I barely ever go down to, to Palo Alto and the Valley. You started quick, QUIBB.com. And I guess the, my first question is, what made you start it? Yeah, so Quib is so it's personalized industry news, looking across a network of experts, and then it delivers that news to you in your inbox every day. And currently, it's focused on there's a lot of people who work in technology, a lot of people who work in gaming, a lot of people who run startups, and also people who work in media and publishing. And so yeah, so I started Quib just I think it was about three years ago now. And that was sort of that was I would say maybe my fourth product. When I moved down here, I worked on a couple other things that didn't work, that failed. But those were all really important for me because, again, I was starting off as basically a, a newbie. So it allowed me to learn a lot really quickly and working on those other products so that I could eventually get to the point where I could work on something like Quib. How did you actually come to building Quib? You spoke about initially yeah. allowing people to read the industry news as well. How did you mm -hmm. stumble upon this problem there? Yeah, so for me it was, so I was coming from, I just finished my MBA, and one of the things that happened during my MBA was I was on, there was a huge eight-month project where I was with seven other people, and we had to do a huge strategic analysis of one company. So we had to look at their financials, we had to look at their marketing materials, their communications, their internal strategy, their hiring plan, everything. They gave us access to it, and we had to create a big strategic assessment of the company and recommendations. And as part of that, in doing that research over eight months we gathered a lot of content that was relevant to this project. And so we had, I had bookmarks on my computer. My colleagues would have bookmarks on their computer. We tried to use like Delicious to share links. We tried, some links would just like end up in emails randomly and we'd have to search for them. Others would end up in chat. We actually got to the point, it was so bad, where we started making, we made a Google Doc 
that had all of the links in it. And that was the best solution we could come up with. And it was clearly not a good solution. And so what happened, the product before Quib was a product to solve specifically that problem. It was this idea of, okay, people who work together on teams share a lot of links and share a lot of content back and forth. And how do you manage the flow and the, the sort of storage of that content so it's easily retrievable. And then what happened was, so I moved here, I started working on a couple other products and learned some things. And this idea came back. And so I, I built a product around that and it failed. But one of the things that happened was I sort of saw, oh, wait a minute, there's actually, um, bookmarking is actually a really interesting use case that has a lot of different little slivers to it. And one of those slivers, those specific use cases is around, hey, this is really interesting. This is news that should be read right now. It's really relevant and I have thoughts on it. Like I want to talk about it with some people. And so it was that use case paired with my sort of understanding of Twitter and how tech people use Twitter, which personally I think is pretty unique in comparison to most other Twitter use cases. And so it was taking the model of Twitter and laying on top of it this need for content and people sharing content relevant to their professional career and their day-to-day -day work. What's your vision for Quip and where do you actually see the platform to be? Sure. So one of the other problems that I had encountered that led to the creation of Quip was while I was doing my MBA, I was working part-time for a clean tech company. And in order for me to do my job well, I subscribed to a bunch of email newsletters from industry associations, from my competitors, from government websites, from regulatory bodies. And I was getting all of this content every day that I had to read. And so when I talk about like the ultimate like vision for Quib and like the long-term plan, I talk about clean tech Sandy. So that's that, that old version of Sandy that was getting all of those email newsletters. And the goal is for Quib to be able to meet the needs of Clean Tech Sandy. So any sort of white collar knowledge based professional can use the platform to find peers and colleagues and experts in their field to see and to get sort of a filter around what's important by leaning on the uh, experiences and eyes of those people. And how do you actually acquire your initial users to the platform? Because, you know, user acquisition is a very tough problem in these websites on trying to, you know, get people mm -hmm. to share, get people to bookmark and get people to comment. Yeah, so I did, uh, there's a couple of different things that I did. So the first one to get, I've talked about this before and people, people seem to think it's kind of funny, but the first probably 40 people that were Quip members were people who I literally had coffee with. So it took me probably like three weeks <laughs> to have enough time to have coffee with all of those people and get them to sign up. But yeah, the first group of people were people who I had maybe met, because at this point I had been in the Valley for maybe a year, a year and a half, and so I had met some people, and so it was meeting with them and showing them the product and asking them to sign up. And it was, I mean, some of them were based in San Francisco, some of them were in San Jose, so it was me sort of driving up and down the peninsula having coffee to very slowly get the first 40 people. And then once that was there, that was enough people to sort of just test the product and get rid of all of the, you know, basic bugs and make sure that people sort of got it and that I was talking about it in the right way and that it did actually meet this need that I had envisioned. 
And from there, there was a couple of different things. One of them was just asking those people then like, hey, what about your colleagues? What about your team? Do you think they would like to use this too? And so using those people almost as nodes to distribute amongst their connections and people that they knew. And then from there, it was, I also recognized that bloggers specifically had a problem where when you have a blog, you've like created this lonely island on the internet with yourself on it and some content. And it's really difficult to get people to show up to your island. And one of the ways to do that is to just write really frequently. But I think you probably know this also, writing a lot and writing good content is really hard. And so to maintain a blog is really difficult. And so one of the assumptions was, well, if these people have audiences that they've spent a lot of time and effort building, that they really want to keep engaged, but they just, you know, can't write every day, in theory, their audience if they're interested in what they're reading, then they, or sorry, what they're writing, then they should also be interested in what they're reading. And so I partnered with a couple of bloggers for them to sign up to Quib and then share their Quib profile with their readers. And then in doing that, a bunch of their readers would sign up. And then it was, it was funny. I would kind of like, if anybody signed up who had a blog, I would be like, oh, I see you have a blog. Like, would you like to share this with your readers? So I think one of the big lessons for me early on was it's really important in the early days. You have to be really sort of, especially for me as a Canadian, I mean, we're sort of known as being a little bit shy and humble. So one of the things in the early days is you just have to, you just have to ask people for a lot of things. You have to do people a lot of favors. And so that was one of the things that for me anyway, personally, I found a little bit hard, but have since gotten used to it. And then I did, uh, there's a couple other things, like I did some content marketing. So if there was like an event that I knew would be, that would be really popular and that I knew people would be searching for the next day, I would go to that event. I think because I was in school for so long, because I have an MBA, six years of schooling, I can take notes really quickly. Um, so I would go to these events and take notes really quickly and then write up the articles. So then the next day when people would be searching for that event, my post would pop up and then it would be on Quib and then it would prompt people to sign up. So in the early days, I mean, it's just a lot of random little tactics just to try to get enough people through the doors that you can actually start looking at trends and have enough people to talk to, to understand what you need to do to to build your company as an asian user to quip i probably come late and actually the <laughs> the interaction i got was actually through one of the journalists i knew from tech in asia oh, okay. and then i see that and then i just try to apply for it oh, okay and that was how it, do you remember yeah. when the first asian users actually turned up on quip i think i do there is it's interesting because i mean when you're because i i think the bay area and the Valley is sort of the global center for tech and startups. So a lot of people from all around the world move here if that's what they want to do. And so you'll meet a lot of people here who are not American. I mean, I'm, I'm not American. Some of the other early people on Quib were Malaysian and Swedish and from the UK, as well as some, there was this one guy who was from Taiwan. And so I think he was the first one. He was living here at the time, but he, I think he, he's back in, he's back in Taiwan now. I remember the person is actually at that point in time, he was with Tech in Asia, that is Josh Horwitz. And then after that, he moved to Quartz now, writing for uh, Quartz. Okay. And then that was okay. how I got it. And the, okay. the interesting part of the story, because I did some research on the story of your company, what it was supposed to do before doing th this interview. You mm -hmm. bootstrapped the platform initially, right? Before seeking mm -hmm. funding. Yeah. Can, can yeah. you share a little bit about that? I mean, it's very rare. I mean, yeah. people are thinking about <laughs> trying to get funding before building the product. You build the product, you bootstrapped it for a while, and then huh. you get the investors on board. 
What's that yeah. experience like? Yeah, it's definitely. I think nowadays there's a lot of people who think that you basically just need an idea and then you show up here and there's like, oh, there's so many seed investors, someone will just write me a check. That's not true. But for me, it was. I knew that. When investors invest in companies, there's certain things that they look for. So one of the things that they can look for is really amazing technology. So like, if you like invented something crazy and amazing that had never existed before. Another thing they look for is team. So they look for, oh, you're you know two x Google engineers. Great. They might also look for some sort of social proof. So that might be through maybe like a letter of intent from a big client if you're a SaaS company or enterprise product. And then the the final thing that they will look for is traction. And so there's sort of these four things. And to successfully raise money for your company, you need one of them really strong. Maybe two of them slightly less strong across each of them, but but still pretty strong. And so for me, I knew that. I mean, Quib is it's it's a Rails app. Like it's not actually amazing, crazy new technology. So I knew I couldn't do that. I knew that wouldn't be like enough to interest investors. Second piece, background. Again, team. I I don't have that. <laughs> I already talked a little bit about how my background is not standard. The other two, I was like, okay, maybe those are the two pieces. Those are the two options that I have in terms of like you have to choose one of these four in order to create something that investors will be interested in. And so I knew that, and that meant okay, the only way I'm going to be able to raise money for this is if I actually show that it works through a combination of traction. And social proof, and so that was sort of my mission. And so, therefore, inherently, that meant that the product had to exist and had to grow to a certain size in order to be able to prove both of those things. So, I mean, it was it was difficult. It was also it was one of these things where you can sort of think about fundraising through that lens and with that sort of understanding of the process. But the other thing that's really difficult to account for is the external market and how things there might change. So it's funny. There was one point. When I was kind of thinking about, I was like, maybe you know, I could I could try raising money now. I had had a lot of inbound from various VCs, and I had developed some relationships with them, and similarly with some angel investors. And so I was sort of like, yeah, you know, maybe maybe I should go raise some money now. But unfortunately, what happened at that time was sort of the, the herd behavior of investors got into this flurry around. Consumer is dead was sort of what people were preaching, and they were like, "Oh, consumer products like aren't working. Like nobody's investing in them anymore. Like we're not interested in consumer." And I was like, "Oh no, but I'm a consumer product." And so at that point, I realized I was like, "Okay, well, if I want to raise money now, I'm not going to get very good terms. I'm not going to get a good valuation." And I was lucky in that I was able to sort of sustain myself for a little bit longer until that turned, and there was no longer that trend in the broader market for for raising money.、Mm. I think one of the interesting things about your story is that you also use an equity crowdfunding platform, which was formerly called AlphaWorks,、mm-hmm. but now it's called Quire Q U I R E, which、mm-hmm. is actually done by BetaWorks,、yeah. which is based in New York. What's that experience like? Yeah, so for me, so it's a very rare way to raise money. A lot of people do it. The only other people, literally, who I know who have done it. In the whole, like in all of America, are the other companies on Quire? It's really rare. And so, what's more common is people will raise money through like a Kickstarter model, where you have a crowd who's giving money 
to some sort of like item or output, whether it be a movie or an electric skateboard or a cold brew coffee machine. And so the people are paying money to actually own some certain item. But with equity crowdfunding, you are actually, your money is going towards equity. In this case, not quite because it's actually debt, but that's a complication we don't have to worry about. But for me, it was really important because, and I was also really lucky because I have a lot of people on Quib who are investors, whether professionally they're, you know, working in a firm or they're an angel investor who has done, you know, a substantial number of investments. And so I had all these people using the platform. And again, because it's a user generated content platform, the people who use it basically make it if, if nobody was there, Quib would be really boring. There would be no content. It would just be me talking to myself. And so for me, I was sort of like, okay, well, who better to bring on as investors in my company than the people who use and understand and really like what it is that I do? Like, clearly, if they want to invest, I should, you know, put them at the front of the line and they should be given the opportunity to invest if they want. And so that was sort of how I thought about it. And then I was lucky in that I didn't like explicitly say to myself, I want to do equity crowdfunding. It was more, I want Quib members to be able to invest in this company and support it if they want to. Mm -hmm. And so how do I do that? The resulting method was equity crowdfunding. And so what I did was I had, so I had three large institutional investors, eight other sort of like large angels and then just over, I think it's maybe 14 individuals who use the choir platform to invest as low as $1,000. So these were people who really liked Quib, had been using it for a while, really wanted to, you know, have a little sliver of the pie. And I really wanted to give them that opportunity. And so choir, what's really nice is I was able to build a page on Quib. So it was just quib.com slash invest. And I wrote a little note and I put up a quick little like six slide deck. I didn't need more because again, these were all Quib members. So they sort of, they knew what Quib was. They used it. They understood it. I had also been really transparent in building the company. So I'd always talk about why I was building new features and what I expected them to do. And should I do this or should I do that? We would have discussions about it on Quib. So these people, in terms of a deck, they didn't really need one. And then there was just a little widget that was embedded on that page where people could enter their information, click an amount they wanted to invest. And then Quire does a really great job on the back end of managing all of the credited investor checks and actually the communications with the investor so I can sort of step back from that part of the transaction. And then, yeah, those. Uh, so there was a final tranche of 100K that came through through Quire. So it's pretty interesting in that experience itself, you actually get your users to be your investors. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it was quite inter interesting to also get your users as your customers too to pay you for the subscription, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Lots of, yeah. So that was another sort of like mm. strange business model. I was, I kept meeting with, it's funny. I mean, people, people sometimes, entrepreneurs anyway, sometimes sort of like tease VCs and make fun of them a little bit. And one of the things that they make fun of is how they always ask, but how will you make money? And so I was getting that question and I was sort of like, hmm, I wonder. And I was like, and I mean, I have some like deep thoughts on what that will look like in the future, but I was curious about if I could do some sort of experiment in the shorter term around that. And so I rolled out the subscription service where it's it's modeled after NPR, so the, the public radio in the US, where you can choose to pay a monthly subscription for Quib just because you like it. 
and you don't get anything special. I don't, you know, give you special privileges or sneak peeks or special access or a t-shirt. It's just to sort of show, like, I really like this product. Mm. I want it to exist in the world. It gives me value. And so I'm willing to pay a little bit every month to use it. What are the kind of essential features that users can do on Quip? I mean, I... As a user, I'm a user and I'm a paid user too. And yes, I actually, thank you. I, thank I, you. I share my links. I share Analyze Asia links. I share some links now. I started sharing some links that I read every day now. And mm-hmm. then I'm a bit shy, maybe because I'm Asian. And uh, <laughs> I, I op- often have this little bit of uh, hesitation when I try to ask for comment. But I've seen sure. you, you getting me to ask to comment. And I've also seen people commenting and having a great discussion. Actually, maybe I'm sure. a lurker reading the discussion. So what are the things that you for you to think that what's the ideal user for you? Yeah, so it's interesting, I think, because people sort of assume that there needs to be a lot of sharing and there needs to be a lot of people putting content into the system. And one of the things that I've built into Quib from from day one that's helpful with that is I expose, so if I'm following you um, and you're following Sanjay, Mm. and Sanjay posts a really great article, but I'm not following him. But if you look at it, because I'm following you, I'll see it. And so I was able to sort of like expand the network density that exists around any one individual by showing these second degree connections. But it's funny, people, the comments that you just said, I hear those all the time. People always ping me and they're like, oh, Sandy, I'm sorry, I should be sharing more. And I'm like, it's okay. There's like more than enough content there. The daily emails that go out, which are personalized based on who you're following. There's always lots of really great content in there. I hear on the other side, people saying, these are too big. Like there's too much great stuff. I can't read it all. And so I think think the the product sort of has been built to enable the standard expectations of activity to allow for a good experience. But I, I do also hear people talking about like what you said about commenting. People are like, oh, I'm scared to comment. Like there's a lot of really smart people here. Like I don't want to embarrass myself. But at the same time, there's enough people who bold enough to comment. And then also I, I've heard related comments where a lot of times people don't like commenting on the internet. It's not a really good experience in general. But people find that commenting on Quib is a much better experience because you get to see the people who are there you get to see people who are liking your comment you know it's like a little bit of like a closed off space and so you don't have to worry about trolls or anonymous people coming in and you know sort of adding random useless comments so people feel a little bit more excited to share their thoughts and i think you also curate the people who apply to quib as well yes yeah yeah so that helps too so one of the ideas is around instead of curating the content specifically, which is what most platforms do, what if you could actually curate the people? And then by doing so, that would lead to, by default, probably a curation of the content that they share. And that's sort of matched with this um, like painting of the whole product with this context of this is for work and this is professional stuff. So like I list companies on the right sidebar. Every person has their job title attached. And so the sort of environment that it exists in is I try to make it very obvious that it's professional. And so therefore, I don't have to do anything around curating the content specifically because people know like, oh, this is just for for work stuff. This isn't meant for like funny cat gifts or uh, basketball news or something like that. As a user of Quip, I like the feature where I know who has checked out my articles. Yeah, and in the, yeah. Okay, the story is that I'm going to just confess. 
one of the interesting <laughs> things I've been doing mm-hmm. is actually testing Analyze Asia content on Quib to find mm-hmm. out my audience in the US. Mm, interesting. Yeah. No, and, the and, uh... yeah, the SoftBank one was interesting because that gave me that was a test that I wanted to do to figure out whether people are really interested in the Asian tech giants. Mm. And once yeah, no, this, people people definitely talk about SoftBank. Yes. And then through that, I actually knew who my audience was. I guess the, this is just my comment. And then I, I tried with Rakuten and I tried with different other things yeah. as well. And I learned a lot through quick. Just learning who my users, who are really listening to the conversation. But for to you, what are the best practices you think a quick user should do? Yeah, so I think, again, it depends. I mean, it depends on people's personalities and people's expectations and sort of what people need in their day-to-day. But I usually recommend that when you first sign up, to, so you can use Twitter to sign up, usually the best. And then from there, when you first get your first email, one of the things that I try to get people to do is to share just one thing so they can at least try it out and see if they like sharing or not. And then also beyond that, I think it is important to try to find some people to, to follow who are interesting to you. So there's a big directory of all the members. You can also search for members by company and also by job title. So maybe you do mobile marketing. You can search for mobile marketing and then find people who are working on that at companies that are similar to yours. Maybe if you're a consumer, consumer app, and then you can find some other people who are like you to to then see, oh, what what are those people reading? And that will help inform the content that then later on the the Quib algorithms use in your daily email so that that gets a little bit smarter and knows sort of which people to look at to to send you their their content. I will be continuing to use Quib, but are there any sort of last thoughts before we go to the last subject on Quib? Um, Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a lot of people, what they tell me is, is they always tell me they're like, I really like Quib. It's the best and highest quality content that I get every day. And so people really enjoy that. They say that the content that they find there is oftentimes they don't see it elsewhere. And then beyond that, also there's the fact that a lot of times there's really interesting discussion on that content that is, again, really interesting and unique because it's from people who actually work on that the, the topic that's in that piece of content. And so that can be really, really helpful and, and informative. I guess the other thing that's specific to your audience um, in Asia who might be listening to this is I know that, yeah, the very first Quib member who was in Taiwan, I remember I did a, I was, I was home for Christmas in Canada and I was, you know, trying to get some work done and I was like well maybe I'll do some quick like user research calls and at this point there was maybe 50 people using Quip and so one of the people that I called was this guy in Taiwan and I was like oh so like what do you what do you like about Quip like tell me tell me about your experience and he was like I had no idea there was all this content he was like I didn't know like where or how to find it and it sounds like in Asia you guys have like a couple really strong publications that work on sharing and creating a lot of really great tech content but he was like you know there's all these blogs that i didn't know existed and they're all really really good and people are sharing information that like here in taiwan like nobody shares and so he found it really compelling and really helpful for him he was building a product in taiwan that at the time i think had maybe five or six million users and he was like this is like really helpful and it's helping me and my teammates to to build our company so that was something that for for your audience is sort of like a nice a nice story about how how quib can sort of help get access to to content that people again here in, in the valley which is 
most people think of as the center of the tech and startup world to sort of peer over their shoulders and see what those people are reading every day. There's the other interesting part of you that you do this thing called the 50-50 pledge and mm -hmm. something to do with women in entrepreneurship, talking about gender diversity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. So 50-50, I, I like to say that I'm... Uh, I'm pretty boring. And so 50-50 is kind of my hobby. And so I started it um, just a couple of months ago. And I sort of recognized that I kept getting pinged by reporters or people running podcasts or people running events saying, Sandy, we're trying really hard to get more women, you know, in our content. Can you help us? Do you know anyone? Can you recommend anyone? And I was sort of like, well, yeah, like, I, I know lots of people like there's there's a ton of amazing, accomplished women tech professionals, both that I know that I've met, and then also that I see every day signing up and using Quib. And so I found it kind of strange that these people were like having so much trouble trying to find them. And I was like, huh, I wonder if there's some sort of gap here that needs to be filled. And so I was like, what if I made a list of women professionals in the tech industry that could somehow act as a resource for people who are doing events? And I chose specifically like conferences and physical events because there they often have like press tied with them. There's an actual like audience. Those people will talk about it with their colleagues once they go back home. And so it's this idea of just trying to get equal representation of men's and women's voices at tech industry events through using this sort of list that exists. That's a, it's a private list, so I, I, I keep it mm. private. I'm partner with events who, you know, are a good match and have great events that are high quality and they sort of think about women in tech in the same way that I do and then help them to get speakers for their events. Mm. And so right now, the, I think the directory is just over... 2300 right now and so there's there's women i mean from from all of the like big tech companies facebook google square twitter box dropbox cisco sap sort of all all of the all of the tech companies have there's basically somebody from most of the big companies and so that was the other really great thing was that all of the women also responded they were like yeah like we want this too like i'm more than happy to put my name and information here um, so it was a really great match it's almost like a, a two-sided marketplace. And so there was a really great match where both sides really wanted connections to the other. So through doing this movement, what have you learned about what should companies and community to need to do more about women diversity in the technology space? I mean, I think it also applies to all, a lot of the other areas as well. Sure. Yeah. So I think one of the things that I, I spoke about this recently at a conference in Ottawa, and for me in working on 5050, it was sort of recognizing like what do it, and it's, it's similar to building any product or anything. You sort of think about, well, what do I have access to? What's my, people call it like your unfair advantage. What do I know? And what do I see in the world that's slightly different? that I can then create something from. And so for me, it was getting pinged all the time by these event people, but then also with Quib, I, I saw every day, like really accomplished women professionals signing up or sharing content or writing a comment. Yet I kept hearing from these event people like, where are they? We can't find these like women who work in this role in this industry. And so I think it's something about sort of recognizing 
what it is that you can do specifically that can have some port, some sort of impact based on your unique perspective in the world. I guess my penultimate question is, what is your advice to encourage not just women, but men to come forward to support the movement? Because my yeah. personal view is that it's not just women's problem. I think it's also a man's problem as well. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I think so at this stage, mostly I'm just trying to, to sign up more women to the directory so I can be a little bit more aggressive and sort of go out and pitch events and pick off some of the really like big and interesting events to make sure that they're getting 50% representation. But I think it's also something about trying to, one of the things that I learned, I did some research around event organizers and also speakers to try to understand like what are the problems that each side has. And one of the issues that I found with women speakers is that a lot of them said, some of them hadn't spoke before. And I was like, oh, like, why not? Like, why, why haven't you done any speaking engagements? And they were sort of like, oh, well, I, wasn't somebody supposed to ask me? Like, I was never asked. And so I think there's just some really basic understanding of how speaking at events and meetups and different types of professional events happens. And I think it's also trying to help people who maybe haven't done that type of presentation before. I know that I spoke at an event before and the organizer was really, really helpful. And he was very upfront about how he would be very helpful to help me get my presentation to a point where it would be really great and I would be really proud of it. And the audience would also really enjoy it. And so I think that men and women can support each other in terms of just like the logistics of of getting people up on stage. It's interesting you mentioned that one of the things I've been trying to do in the, in this podcast, and I, mm-hmm. I'm pretty, and I've actually sp- told that to a couple of the women who came on the show, is that mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to get to the 50-50 oh, okay. as well. It is is not easy for uh, in, even for me. I'm like, sure, I'm trying sure. as well because that will actually also make the conversation better and much more interesting mm-hmm. for us yeah. in, in the Asia part. I think Asia is a little bit much more open on, mm. on getting this gender diversity more and more these days. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, one of the one of the arguments that I, again, at this the same talk, talk that I gave in Ottawa was... I mean, using me as an example, with Quib, I mean, I chose the subscription model, which is kind of strange. I have the member model where you have to apply, which is also, you know, kind of strange. Like both of those don't exist in a lot of products, if at all. Like they're they're pretty unique. And I think that probably you could trace those decisions back to the like my past and my experiences and the fact that I am a woman and I don't have the standard like tech background. And so one of my sort of arguments is, well, what if we gave access to people to, you know, start companies and become entrepreneurs that aren't the standard founders? Like, I was able to sort of identify one interesting, like, business strategy and one interesting revenue model. Like, what other strategies and models and ideas are we not looking at and not thinking about and not considering because we don't have the right people at the table to be able to even imagine those possibilities and so i think it's really important that um it's really great to hear that you're almost at 50 um, um, no i'm I think... not yet i'm, I'm still <laughs> 70 30 and i'm not happy okay. with the number by the way personally yeah. i'm trying I mean, i'm trying to get to that number sure it is it, but of course when interviewing the women founders i'll try to get them hey who can i talk to so sure. i just use the I, I use a more referral approach because they sure. they are the best people to point me to the next person 
Sure. Yeah. No, it's uh, I, I will happily give you some referrals after our yeah. chat. If you ever find any Asian founders, you let me know too. Okay. Yeah, we'll do. Our executives. I think that's probably the other interesting mm-hmm. point as well. So Sandy, thank you so much. And I still have one more question for you. And that's mm-hmm. the last question. How do my audience find you? Yes, uh, they can find me uh, on Twitter. So Twitter, I'm Sandy Mac, S-A-N-D-I-M-A-C. And then if you apply a submitted application to Quib, I will review your application. And then uh, if you're accepted as a member, then I'm sure you'll see my face all over Quib. <laughs> and then after, if you are like a happy user like myself, you end up <laughs> becoming a subscribe user as well. Exactly, yes. <laughs> that, that would be great also, yes. You can find me at bleongcwo.com or subscribe to us, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E, Asia, A-S-I-A. Or you can find us at Stitcher's iTunes, SoundCloud and Acast. And please leave a rating and also give us your comments. And I hope to hear more from the users out there. Once again, Sandy, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you.